All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf, as usual, and joined as usual by my friend and producer, Michael Chauvin-Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hello there. So, Michael, I'm speed talking and not making a joke (laughs) (laughs) because the episode, (laughs) I know, people are going to be like, is my playback that's at right time am and i on half? one and a half <laughs> <laughs> and if you're on one and a half shame on you no <laughs> yeah really um <laughs> no listen to it however you need to <laughs> um so the episode runs long so we're we're trying to get right to it but it's a, it's a great conversation with the new executive director of the Aperture Foundation, who was formerly the curator of photography at MoMA, Sarah Meister. So what did you think about the episode? This was a, a great introduction and, uh, you know, Sarah's new position at Aperture. Um, you have a, you start with a really fantastic conversation about Dorothea Lang, who, you know, you get, you, what you get from the conversation is how important Dorothea Lang was to both of you. Uh, and then as the conversation moves along, you can see how Sarah's thinking about her new role and, uh, you know, who the modern audience is of photography and who the you know, modern photographers are right now in photography. Yeah, it's it's really a very organic progression conversation-wise. Um, right. I do bring up Lang because that was the, not the last, but one of the last major exhibitions Sarah curated at MoMA and the last exhibition I saw before lockdown. I think I saw it a week before lockdown in New York. That was words and pictures. Yeah, so good. Yeah. And yep, just sort of flows from there into a great conversation about, you know, who considers themselves a photographer. What does it mean to to be a photographer? Where do amateur photographers, whatever that means, you know, where does that come in? And that just sort of like rolls us into aperture and who the audience is for both the magazine and the books and how Aperture mm-hmm. can sort of best serve the community and again who the community is and so it's really I think fabulous and and Sarah is incredibly warm and funny and so it it yes. just has great energy I think and and really moves along but there's tons of great little nuggets of information let me just say before we get to it that if people want to pick up my book, Photo Work, if you don't already have it, boo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or if you want another copy. For a friend. For a friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> use the code PHOTOWORKPOD on Aperture's online bookshop and you'll get 30% off. The book. Nice. So yeah, very nice. Anyway, okay, without further ado, Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here's your conversation with Sarah Meister. Sarah Meister, welcome to the PhotoWork podcast. It's fantastic to uh have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So, so much to get to. I have my very first 
aperture monograph um, right next to me, the one that my mom got me when I was 15, but I'm not going to tell you what it is oh, yet. Oh, killing me um, from the start. But, for, but I am going to tell you, but first, if you can give us a little, this is how I get out of reading people's bios, okay. if you can um, just give us a rundown of your life story. And, and, and you've just taken over at Aperture at, as the executive director. So how, how did you wind up there? Well, I am uh, less than a month into my new job. So this is a pretty <laughs> exciting moment. <laughs> I can't say too much about Aperture yet. But for the rest of my life, my whole career, I had been at the Museum of Modern Art, where I was a curator in the Department of Photography since 2009, although I had been in the Department of Photography since graduating from college. So I went to Princeton University. I studied art history under Peter Bunnell. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Danny Lyon. And although that thesis is truly cringeworthy, <laughs> I mean, please, it's so terrible. Um, I will say the experience is the only thing I can point to for how I could justify why Peter Galassi hired me at all. Because as great of a, you know, a thrill as it was to study with Peter Bunnell, I can't say I really knew that much graduating from college. Not what I wanted to do with my life. I did know that I loved photography. I had been doing it as a practitioner, let's say, since middle school. And when I got to college, it was when I realized I was pretty much had no talent as a photographer. And that was when I shifted over to studying it as a sort of part of art history. And so that original love of photography and being in the dark room and the smell of the chemicals and all of that, that morphed into a college major as an art history major. And then to my absolute shock, surprise, and delight, it morphed into a job at MoMA, which then turned into a 20, more than 26-year career there. So it's a, it's a fairly simple line. Not many, <laughs> I mean, a lot happened along the way, but that's pretty much it. And you grew up in New York City. I did. Um, sorry. I, yeah. A little more. Sorry. I did grow up that, in New York okay. City. I, I live here now, obviously, to work at Aperture and MoMA. I have a husband and two teenagers and a really wonderful dog named Arnie, who Arnie. is very, he's a rescue. He's as neurotic yeah. as you would think you would ever get from that designation. But he's a love. So, yeah. They're the best. They are. They are. All right, so I'll tell you now, my listeners of the show probably are cracking up because I think sometimes when I talk about this, because I managed to work it into so many different conversations, I say I was 15 and other times I was 16, and I just don't know if I was 15 or 16, but we'll forgive it. my first Aperture monograph that is right next to me was Dorothea Lange. <gasps> really? Yes. Oh, well, that's a surprise, and I... I I can say, even though I've listened to a number of your podcasts, I didn't know that. So it, it does come up. Okay. I, I'm so, you know, sometimes, you know, we have our pieces of our origin story. And if we're self-reflective enough, we know that there's a chance we made some of it up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. 
I haven't decided yet what I'm going to tell you that I've definitely made up or just imagined, but I don't think we've hit it yet. But I do know, I mean, one of the great things about the fact that I still have this book and the other one, which was Paul Strand, is that they're still marked up and there's like this really incredible through line. I, I mean, I know this part of my you know, origins, the origins of where I am now come from this book. And it, it it's so, anyway, now I'm going to get to you. Um, I, I'm I do, happy I, to talk about I, you too. I do have a tendency to And certainly, to as we always say at MoMA, <laughs> for the love of Lang, it's like you, you can't go too deep or too long into Lang from okay. my perspective. All so, right. Well, I just want to say one of my favorite exhibitions of all time, so Thank you so much for that gift. It was the last thing I saw before lockdown. Um, I cried through at least half of it. Um, And I have a very complicated relationship to museums. I don't like crowds, very uncomfortable crowds and tight spaces with crowds. So it's not always a comfortable place for me. But I fell into that exhibition and just completely was was enveloped in in the best thank way thank you so much um, that's so wonderful to hear no really thank you so i for people if they don't know maybe you, you could Should, tell folks sure, about what sure, we're sure. talking about right <laughs> so as not to be too mysterious <laughs> um in february of 2020 the museum opened opened an exhibition that I had organized along with a Newhall fellow named River Bullock. And the exhibition was called Dorothea Lang, Words and Pictures. And it featured a hundred photographs by Lang from the museum collection, most of which had been acquired in the late 30s, 40s, 50s, into the 60s. And the question was really how, here's this extraordinary figure in photography's history, what, what's a different way of looking at or understanding her? And I had, before that exhibition, I had worked on a little book about her photograph, Migrant Mother, which of course everyone knows, even people who don't know, it was made by Dorothea Lange, they know the image. And when I was doing the research for that, I read a part of her oral history, a transcript of her oral history, where she described her philosophy that she said all pictures, not only those that are so-called documentary, can be fortified by words. And I thought to myself, no, you know, I totally disagree for starters. I, I don't think all photographs can be fortified by words. But more important than that, how intriguing for somebody who's dedicated their life Mm -hmm. to image making to proclaim so boldly and clearly the reliance of pictures on words. And then I started thinking, well, isn't it also so interesting, her book, An American Exodus, that she did with Paul Taylor, that mixes words and pictures in a really... that mixes words and pictures as a way of building historical context, Mm -hmm. social context, giving voice to those people that she pictured in a way that's so unlike Margaret Bork White, Uh, you know, that's really very distinctively her own. And then I started thinking about that little migrant mother photo, or not that little, depending on what print you're looking at, but 
how many different words had been associated with it mm -hmm. over its lifetime. Yeah. It wasn't even called Migrant Mother until 1952 in print. And all of those words, the picture was like Teflon with those words. The mm -hmm. words just, it didn't, simply didn't matter what mm -hmm. anyone said or wrote about it. It was the picture. And so thinking about these things, I thought, what about a way of understanding Lang through different combinations of words and pictures. So not only in American Exodus, but also Life Magazine. What do those combinations of words and pictures mean to her? Or various books that her work appeared in, like Archibald MacLeish's Land of the Free, which is in effect, as MacLeish so beautifully described, it's not a book of poetry illustrated by photographs, it's a book of photographs illustrated by a poem. Mm -hmm. And those photographs were mostly by Lang, not exclusively. So that, that became the idea. And it, it was so rewarding for me, both because Lang's work is so great and really we built a structure of an exhibition that just put forward only our favorite photographs. And if you're only choosing 100 out of the hundreds and hundreds that are in the museum collection, that wasn't hard. But you're also thinking about what's, what are different ways that you can help people today think about the relationship between photography and language. And I think if I did my job right, it allowed people those two pleasures simultaneously. I think you did do your job right. I mean, I, I you know, look, first of all, I'm not an absolutist. So, you know, even Lang's proclamation is... You know, say say it again because she said basically she said all pictures can be fortified right. by words. Can be. Well, she may have even said. By the way, I wish I had the book with me right now. She may have even said all pictures are fortified by words. It was it was ah, such a strong statement. Yeah. It it was a statement. I agree. Sorry, not to be. You know. Anyway, we're all specific about words and pictures. Um, it was such a strong statement that it made me stop in my tracks. And I'm sorry, I don't have it with me right now. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. I mean, I, I have I my actually... boxes for a moment that I haven't yet unpacked. If I had unpacked them yet, I would have a copy of it at my fingertips. You know what I was thinking though? I was also thinking like her relationship with her husband, with Paul, was and their collaboration was so important that mm -hmm. in a way. You know, she had to believe in the importance of words, right? Mm -hmm. Because he was writing. Yeah. Well, he was an agricultural economist. He actually made pictures. He understood yeah. pictures too. And he I, made yeah. pictures to illustrate his reports until he realized that in working with her, even before they were married, her photographs would be so much more effective um, than his. So he was wise mm -hmm. enough to know that. <laughs> yeah. But I think she, what maybe what she learned from him was the capacity to listen and to transcribe voice into mm -hmm. words. When you read the end papers from an American Exodus and you can actually, without condescension or exaggeration or undue romantic over, you can actually hear the voices of the people that she's photographing because of the conscientiousness with which those voices are recorded yeah. in writing. And yeah. that is also an extraordinary gift that I think they they both held that. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like, you know, you know, she's, and I think 
you know, history, we've sort of grappled with her place. And as we often grapple with the sort of gray area of documentarian Mm -hmm. slash artist or documentarian versus artist or whatever it is. And I think, I assume she struggled with that as well. And, and, Actually, she didn't because she she didn't think of herself as an artist. It's fa- she she didn't think of herself as an artist. She didn't think of herself as an activist. And yet, I would say she was undoubtedly both of those. But she she saw herself as serving a higher purpose mm-hmm. through photography, and she didn't fret <laughs> how yeah. that was, which I find so admirable you know she was she was just doing the work that she believed had to be done and how you know i think she was even somewhat disdainful or at least perplexed by her friend imogen cunningham's obsession with making art you know Mm -hmm. she when she was at working in her photo studio in san francisco in the 20th she was worrying about serving a client. You know, right, she yeah. didn't really, she didn't turn to the street until 1932, the depths of the depression. And by that time, she had kind of grown up enough, I would argue as an artist, but certainly let's say as an image maker, that she just, she she was somehow above the fray right. like that. And, and yet, so deeply empathetic as a human being that she she knew how photography could speak to the human condition mm-hmm. you know and you know i'm always suspicious of photographers who don't want to use the term artist so <laughs> <laughs> i think they just um, don't want to say it out loud but you know and well, i well it's a pretty it's yeah. a high bar um I, you know i'm someone who just believes in going for it and um, committing and not being scared of of um, falling. So, but, you know, I don't think anyone can be as aesthetically minded, almost perfect as her without mm-hmm. knowing in their soul that they're a great artist. Well, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, a little bit, I don't know if you're going to get to this, so I don't mean to preempt your questions. No, no, <laughs> don't worry. It's just, just but, chatting. But but my last my last exhibition that I organized at MoMA that's on view through September is an exhibition of amateurs right. who, again, yeah. if you had asked them how they described themselves, they would have said, I'm a doctor, a lawyer, a banker, an engineer, a teacher, or whatever. And photography was something they pursued as a hobby in their, you know, in their own time on the evenings and weekends. And that idea of whether you call yourself an art, you know, and they were nonetheless incredibly serious about what they Mm -hmm. were doing with the camera. They had extraordinary aesthetic ambition. And so in part, I feel like maybe it's the categories themselves that are the problem. And Mm -hmm. so to those Mm -hmm. people you know, who work with a camera, if you don't want to call your, I mean, I agree what Dorothea Lang did absolutely enters the realm of art. And you know that because when you stand in front of it, you know, unless you're a robot, you're moved by it. So that is art, whether or not the person making it calls themselves an artist. But but I think sometimes the, the categories of art and not art, you know, it's like, what are you, what's the opposite of an artist. And this is where I think the whole term vernacular, which is such a 
big umbrella, but is so not helpful in because all it's doing is setting everything up in contradistinction to being an artist. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually kind of at the moment, you know, anti the the labels themselves create problems. So if it, I, if I somebody, agree, I think yeah. they're a total nuisance. And I mean, personally, I'm fine with anyone who wants to call themselves an artist. I'm fine with anything being artistic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it has any depth or complexity, if it's not a postcard, to me, it's artistic. And yeah, I find all the sort of, you know, need to silo everything off really frustrating, personally. Mm. And it's, you know, and sometimes you're speaking of postcards, but like even the banality of that in the right hands of the right person, yes, you know, agreed. Um, you know, Sarah Swinar is like Umbrico, taking, po yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> there, are you, there are lots of examples of somebody who takes, Martin pa anyway, we could go. Of course. No, absolutely. We could, no, we could absolutely. go super, super deep and long on this. But, you know, why are we setting, I mean, it's not that we shouldn't be bringing our capacity for judgment and our belief in what we like and what moves us to these things. But I don't know, that art, it's thorny. It, it, no, it is. It is. And it's why every sentence when talking about art and how one feels about it should begin with, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't think, or I don't think, I, I don't think that works. That doesn't work for me. Right, personalize um, it. Right. I mean, there's no, it's not good, it is good. You know, it's uh, just starting with it's not good or it is good. Is You know, just that alone drives me nuts. Right. Well, and that's one of the other things I loved so much about this group of Brazilian modernists, these amateurs, they had scorecards that they would publish in their monthly magazine as examples of the criteria by which they judged one another's work. And half of the fa factors that they called them were mechanical or technical, lighting, mm -hmm. composition, tonal range, you know, craftsmanship. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Then that's fine. And you and the the four options that you were given were excellent, good, fair, or poor. And it's like, mm -hmm. okay, fine. <laughs> you know, I I I I'm gonna plausibly I'm gonna go along with the idea that you could look at tonal range and judge it. But more than half of the criteria they grouped under the category factor psicologico. Now surely the psychological factors of a photograph are more difficult to quantify mm -hmm. as excellent, good, fair, poor. And then of course they have the last question on the scorecard is general reaction to the photograph, aesthetic philosophical reaction or something like that. And you just think, even they understood that at the at the long end of this exhaustive term sheet, yes, there are criteria that we look to and we rely on. I mean, I believe I know a good photograph, but I'm also learning to be wise enough to acknowledge that my own taste factors in yes. to this thing. Yep. And that, you know, with something like photography that's so complicated that we feel like we spend our lives trying to make sense of it, making peace with how something as simple as what you like might weigh into it to personalize it, like you were saying, that's taken me a long time to get there. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I'm, I, I struggle all the time with the knowledge that no matter how strongly I feel about something being successful, put it that way, successful and not successful as a 
object of art, a photographic object of art, that it always comes down to my taste, you mm -hmm. know, and that can be really frustrating. And there's a great quote. My, so as I was writing this essay about, um, and the subtitle of my essay was in Portuguese, excellent, good, fair, poor, colon, judging post-war photography in Brazil. Because in part, <laughs> it was about the exercise of like, how do I judge this work? Right. How do they judge their own yep. work? And so as I was doing that, Minor White for Aperture Magazine, no less. So of course, um, this was my pre-interview um, research that I didn't know was going to lead to an interview. But Minor White wrote in one of the early issues of Aperture about criticism. And he literally goes on for, you know, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of words about photographic criticism. And he, the conclusion is, and I quote him, ultimately, criticism is intuitive. <laughs> so you're just going to go on and on a huge long article about photographic criticism, but in the end, it's intuitive. <laughs> um, so the I essay could have been one sentence. Right. Well, I mean, I would say it's both, meaning I believe that I am better at judging photographs now than I was when I started, and that that, is, that judgment is continually, I, I work to challenge and refine the criteria and understand when certain things are actually complicit in excluding swaths of photographic history mm -hmm. by judging against them. But I, you know, you, you, so I, I actually believe that judgment is the responsibility of people who spend their lives thinking about photographs mm -hmm. because what makes a good photograph matters to people who are on Instagram, to people in museum, and the ability to articulate what makes a good photograph is, that's, that's not always easy, but it is part of, part of our job. Yeah. But I think you can do that and acknowledge where your taste comes into it. Right. No, ex that's exactly it. I mean, I, that's exactly, like, that's my, my life is, you know, in a very small sort of micro way, this sort of adjacent to, I'm sure, what you did as a, a curator. No, at, no, I no, put no, them no. totally aligned. No, right. Uh, I right, would say but, in exactly the same way. Well, I'm right. dealing with the very, in, in my little pond, but, you know, I, I meet with new collectors all the time. And, and the first thing that they ask me to do, and it is my joy, my pleasure, my honor, it's one of my favorite things, actually, is is to teach them about what makes a good photograph. But it I is so I'm... tricky because of everything we're talking about. And so I have to be very careful about my biases and yeah. just to be as humble as possible, just to try and stay as humble as possible. But of course, look, I couldn't do my job if I didn't think I had, you know, a good eye. Um, right it would be impossible. And so, of course, I have criteria and sort of the rigor of the practice is, is always sort of my starting off point because if we're not there, I, I'm probably turned off already, you know? Um, you know, it's interesting though because it a little bit about having a good eye is being able to articulate to somebody mm -hmm. who may not have that what it is they're Absolutely. seeing that's appealing to them. And so, you know, I mean, one of the things that I like when I go to galleries is asking a dealer to talk to me about an artist's work because you can, you can, 
I almost always learn something. And yes, it's like yeah. that holding in balance the sort of art historical context or framework for approaching something with the aesthetic or other criteria, material elements that you, you know, let's hope that by now you and I know what we're looking at, but like, you know, I, <laughs> sometimes I can still learn things. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, without relying, you know, I remember, I mean, I cringe when I think about some of the early tours that I gave, gave and yes, I was enthusiastic, but I was just relying so much on, I really like this. I love this work, blah, right. blah, blah. And it's like, well, that's useless to anyone who doesn't feel the same way. And even to someone who does feel the same way, mm -hmm. what specific language can you use to bring understanding yes. to this photograph? Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know if you ever, Paul Graham's way he wrote a piece called The Unreasonable Apple. Oh, yeah, I, I practically memorized it, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great piece of writing, and yeah. it's kind of a call to arms, you know, that it's up to people like you and like me in exactly the same pool and in exactly the same way to articulate how a, why a photograph should matter mm -hmm. in the world through an intersection of its material and contextual, you know, through a framework that includes both of those. And that, you know, you a photograph shouldn't have to rely upon some broader conceptual framework in order to sort of approach it on its own terms and to build a vocabulary for talking about it. And I remember reading that, well, he actually spoke it first at the first forum on contemporary photography. And I just thought, wow, I'm not doing my job as well as I should, <laughs> you know. I mean, I had that with when I first read Beauty and Photography, Robert Adams. Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm, like, oh, mm -hmm. thank you for that mm -hmm, language. Let mm -hmm, me mm -hmm. underline that, that, and that. I'll be, mm -hmm. I'll be speaking that. Um, well, and I feel like in in the in the in your Aperture book, not to plug that, but <laughs> do it. But Robert Adams is really. It, it's such. First of all, it's so great that he falls so early in the alphabet. So you yeah, read he's it first. first. It's hilarious. Yeah. But it. But it's such an obstreperous. You know, he's really pushing against your question. Oh, I know. It's fantastic. In his answers. Yeah. And, and he's not wrong. No. You know? No, no. I love it. It's great. <laughs> yeah. And and actually, one of the things I that surprised me about that book overall is that, what he has and what John Tchaikovsky had, um, and actually what Paul Graham. Had, it's a rare gift to be able to articulate in words yeah. what should matter in a photograph Absolutely. or about photography. It is, it is really hard. And one of the things, and I think it's actually unfair, meaning you don't want to like a photographer because they can do it, and you don't want to not like a photographer because they can't. But one of the things that your book surprised me with was, I mean, I, I wonder who ended up on the cutting room floor, but they were all so good, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Even people who I might not have assumed had that capacity to convey in words with specificity there. And maybe it was because you framed some good questions or, you know, I don't actually, I wasn't here. I don't know what the editing process was like, but, but it manages to bring forward all of those different voices in a way that gives you real insight into their practices. So you, I mean you can hear them. I'll tell you why I think that happens. So it's not a mystery. Okay. The questions 
were framed to be easy to answer. Mm-hmm. And I asked everyone who I asked to contribute to speak plainly. So I, I, mm-hmm. I said, I won't, art speak will not be accepted. <laughs> um, and so I, in a way, I think I did, that was a favor for everyone because then they, they it sort of, I mean, you see what I got back. I got back. That's yeah, pretty darn good. And, and, and I did really go to people who have a rigorous practice. Now, is everyone in the book at the same level? No. Um, right. Is everyone in the book equally great? I don't know. That's sort of what we're talking about. You know, it's a matter of taste. Uh-huh. But for the most part, everyone in the book is a serious artist. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what, what you realize is that they really – they know the answers because they they think about their practice all the time. And mm-hmm. I mean, I know this from working with my artists is that they're always surprising that way. Even with a new body of work that they're fumbling around with, they can, you know, they've been obsessing enough that they can really articulate what their goals are and what the, where they're going. And um, even if they don't ever get there. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I but I do think just just to be honest that it was designed to elicit the sort of responses I got, but it's not heavily edited at all. It's great. I really, and I can say that because I had not. I, what I love is, for instance, the New York issue of Aperture Magazine. I'm like, I love it, and yeah. I can say that because I had nothing to do. With it. Um, <laughs> You're about so to I can brag say, even after no, you, no, I, I, I can't. Or, no, yeah, about a year from now, uh, I might be able to point to certain things. But for now, I can just admire what they're doing. So let's talk about Aperture. Um, okay. What's Aperture to you? What's Aperture's, what do you see as Aperture's mission? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a little afraid of mission statements in general. So yeah, that's, that's I'm, so fine. <laughs> I have a healthy fear of a mission. Th- um, I think they're critically important and it's one of the things that I want to do is to look at the current mission statement and think like, does this serve the field in the broadest, does it serve the field and the organization in the broadest way? So, but I believe that actually to do that is a collaborative process. So again, I've been here three weeks. I don't want to, (laughs) who knows, Um, talk to me in a year. But in terms of one, you know, I believe that Aperture functions at the heart of the photography universe. And that when it's working optimally, it's supporting artists, it's supporting museums, it's supporting enthusiasts, it's supporting collectors, and it's bringing insight and understanding around photography to the world. And it's like the nucleus. Photo- yeah, and because, you know, it, it's even clarified even more Aperture gave up its New York City gallery space about 18 months ago. And the, you know, in part, one of the things that people have asked me is like, well, what do you think of that decision? And in some ways, I think it's a clarifying position because for Aperture to best, when you look around New York City, there's so many great galleries that show photography. There's so many great museums that show photography. Other, um, you know, photo spaces, photo museums, you know, it's like, what does the field need that Aperture Mm -hmm. can provide? And one of the things I know from all of my, you know, MoMA was one of the few museums that was actually able to have a 
successful photography publishing program. But in general, that is elusive. And so how can Aperture work with artists, work with curators to think about what does the field need and what can Aperture do to serve it? And that's tremendously exciting to me. Um, it, is it and primarily I, publishing? Well, I would say it's anchored in the quarterly magazine that, you know, has brought these issues and ideas forward since mm -hmm. 1952, founded by Dorothea Lange, mm -hmm. among others, no less. So it's anchored in the magazine. It's expanded and strengthened through the book program, but it's also the digital platforms and mm -hmm. it's also opportunities, you know, someday we will meet together again in, in small and larger groups. And so Aperture can do, do all of those things. And what, you know, when I think about Aperture's audience, actually, when I was working on this amateur photography show, the second issue of Aperture magazine, the editorial was written by Melton Ferris. Now, he is one of the shall we say, lesser known founders of Aperture Magazine. Mm -hmm. And Melton Ferris wrote, in 1952, he wrote, Aperture draws no editorial boundaries between the professional and the amateur, the pictorialist and the documentarian, the journalist and the scholar. And I thought to myself, yes, you know, that <laughs> that's who Aperture's audience was and should be and mm -hmm. and is actually mm -hmm. meaning the billions of people who are interested in photography on Instagram are close cousins to the people who think critically about circulation of images through Sarah Swinar's work you know these are not we don't have to draw hard distinctions again mm -hmm. like you like we we're talking about between who's an artist and who's not because i think even practices that sort of superficially i mean i couldn't believe that aperture said pictorialist and documentarian mm -hmm. i was like they're they're trying to build a tent in 1952 yeah, yeah. that was broad enough to embrace pictorialism yeah amazing like yeah that's kind of surprising to me yeah. but also and, and sort for people of who don't know what you're talking about that at that point pictorialism was really shunned in photography it, i mean i would say even for me selfishly up until a couple of years ago yeah. i thought pictorialism was sort of a stultifying reaction against the very vibrant democracy of what makes photography so interesting mm -hmm. you know that the idea of setting up something as the other than mm -hmm. which is how i had narrowly defined pictorialism felt you know and and this is just where i think all of these cat you know an, an embrace of the mess in photography is part of its charm and it's part definitely definitely you know it's complicated but i think it's true well i mean i i like that idea of aperture because to me that's how i think of aperture um as as just this this wonderful nucleus and you know it's good that I'm not actually, I don't actually work for Aperture because then it would just, it would, it would <laughs> well, sound. Then you couldn't interview me because then that would be weird. No, it would also, like all the great things I say about Aperture, no one would, you know, it would just seem so self-serving. <laughs> but, but I really feel, to me, I mean, my experience is, is that 
I just trust Aperture so, so much, and and I feel like it's sort of like a north star. And look, Aperture does things that I don't connect with, and Aperture publishes mm-hmm. things I don't connect with, and mm-hmm. whatever. But basically, I have I know for me, I have such a deep trust in Aperture, and it's it's this has been now for like you know forty years of my life. I mean, it's sort of amazing. It is a kind of amazing it organization. Yeah. I mean, there there are lot not a lot of places where I loved working at MoMA. It it was really an extraordinary place to be. I learned so much. My colleagues were so great. The collection was unbelievable. So there's very little that could make me feel like, oh no no no, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, but Aperture is it really? You know, because it it does. There's an integrity to the yeah. asking and an openness to the answers that, you know, and again, I can say this because I don't really have anything to do with it yet, but I hope to continue to encourage the great editors of the books and the magazine that really bring actual meaning and understanding to photography and through Mm -hmm. photography. And that, that's a gift. Yeah. And, you know, and then my question is like, well, what did we do at MoMA that might actually help support them even more? You know, is there, you know, what kind of like boring processes and structures without, you know, while still embracing that we're a nice, nimble, you know, fewer than 40 people organization, is there something that I've learned in all my years at MoMA that might be helpful here? I hope so. Well, let me ask you something, because I, I, this is something I wonder about. I'm sure the answer to that is yes, but... Um, <laughs> we'll see. We'll but, see. Someone believed so. <laughs> but, um, you know, I talked to Gregory Harris from The High a number of weeks mm-hmm. ago, and, you know, one thing that was really fun for me to talk to him about was sort of the way museums think about education and educating mm-hmm. the public about whatever work is up on the walls. And I'm really sort of fascinated by this. Now, I, let me see if I can articulate this because this is one mm-hmm. of those just things that lives it's in hard. my head. Right. And Okay. But I we'll wonder... No, good. Thank you. I, I'm going to need help. Together. If, if I start Together. stumbling, please okay. try and finish my sentence for me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, how do you think... How did you think at MoMA and how do you think now... When you think about Aperture, how do you think about that sort of space where, you know, things can be so sort of advanced in their presentation that they're really only talking to people who are already in the know? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, you can't be all things to all people. So Mm -hmm. you don't want to be talking to people who are just beginners. I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. where do we find that space? And how do we yeah. navigate that? Because I want to bring more people in. And I, I feel like sometimes the art world is, is its own worst enemy in that regard. Yeah, I think it can be. So I'm not sure how I feel. No, I always okay, joke well, here, about let, not let me, loving I the masses. I, but, I, but I think I can run with that. Okay, good. Um, Thank you. I think for me, things really started to change around 2016 when with my colleagues in education at MoMA and digital media, we organized an online course called Seeing Through Photographs. And that, you know, that, that had hundreds of thousands of learners 
who joined and participated Amazing. in the course. From, and by the time I left, it was 375,000 people oh my God. who were curious about photography. What's the difference between an image and a photographic object? And, you know, or my favorite P.L. de Corsha quote, photography is a foreign language that everyone thinks they speak. Right. Which, <laughs> like, thank you, P.L. de Corsha. Um, so to me, that totally shifted my sense of audience and purpose. So before that, I had always thought that I was working for the museum visitor, for the whoever that might be. You know, we think, MoMA thinks of that as somebody who, you know, has some understanding, you know, is well-read, but not necessarily a specialist in anything. And so we, ha we write to that voice, to that, how do you help an intelligent person who doesn't know anything about what they're looking at to approach this? Mm -hmm. and, and there is a, you know, there's a great function for museum education departments, for schools and universities, obviously, but to think about that, that function, the educational function of Aperture is a little different. It's like, we're not a museum, we're not a school, and yet we are as deeply committed to this idea of learning through photography and mm -hmm. around photography mm -hmm. as anything. And then, it, you know, to your point about like, who are you speaking to? Who are your, who is your audience? I think if you can't make something intelligible or interesting to a broad audience, then you're probably not doing that good a job of, mm -hmm. make, you know, then that, then, then you're not succeeding. And so all of those groups that Melton Ferris was, you know, trying to speak to, to Aperture in 1952. And, and, and I'm one of the things that the editors and I have been talking about is like, how can you take this extraordinary magazine that they publish every quarter that is like prescient and filled with sort of insight and inspiration and understanding and, you know, it does. And what if you aren't necessarily interested in the theme mm -hmm. that's that, you know, where, how could we work on what's at the front or the back of the magazine to give more inroads to help somebody who maybe is it's not it could be that they're not as advanced you know they don't they don't have a they're not an artist or they don't have a master's degree you know in our history but maybe it's that you want to give something to everyone who cares about photography because mm -hmm. the truth is the number of people who care about photography today and understanding it better is simply tremendous mm -hmm. you know um, and of, of all of those seeing through photographs people when we launched, you know, so let's say the first 100, 150,000 people, when we launched, 30% of them had never heard of MoMA. And so it's like they saw the word photography. Right. And they were like, God, I want to take that course. Yeah, that is and incredible. And so yeah. you, you realize that you're, you know, we are fortunate in that we work with these crazy objects that are both, you know, have this amazing capacity for you know, to stop you in your tracks, to make you stand and feel something, you know, in a different way. And also to make you think differently, more deeply, more. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we can share that, those experiences more broadly, then I think that's, 
what education through photography means to me. Because I actually think, well, this is, sorry, I'm going on too long. No, you're not. but, But one of the things that I loved was that when we reinstalled the collection galleries at the museum uh, in the fall of 2019, we reopened these reimagined and expanded collection galleries. And I loved the thought that you went from the first gallery on the fifth floor that featured Cezanne, Van Gogh, you know, Degas, all mm-hmm. of these, uh, all, Seurat, all of these incredible figures. And you went into the second gallery and which is filled with photographs and films. And I'd argue that 97% of the people who walked into that second gallery had never heard of a single person, Mm -hmm. a single maker associated with any of those objects that were on view. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, that's how photography can be like a conditioning chamber, not just to approach the rest of the collection galleries where the goal is to encourage curiosity about something that is unfamiliar, meaning the world doesn't need more reassuring, reinforcing of something we feel that we know. What the world needs is an encouragement of the tools that help us look at something that's unfamiliar or someone Mm -hmm. that's unfamiliar and to say with patience and sympathy and attention, you know, I want to get to know that. And I think that photography is uniquely able to encourage that curiosity, you know, in art and in life. And, and so that's, that's what interests me about photography and it's what I love about being at Aperture where that quest is it. It's everything. It's the beginning, it's the middle and the end. And after many, many years of loving thinking about photography as one of the fine you know, one of the arts that uh, MoMA collects and displays, it's a different thing here. And I love putting photography at the middle and then seeing, you know, where you go, where we go with that. Is there, is it possible for Aperture to be, to sort of be all things to all people? Is that Um, possible? No, no. I mean, you know, I have teenagers, so I know that you can be unpopular or alienate, you know, um, even with good intentions. And um, so you can't be all things to all people, but you can take something like photography that you know people care about and you can push at the boundaries of what they think they know and they understand either by offering, you know, someone like Sarah Swinar, I would say her work doesn't look like somebody who might be represented by you or is like in your, and yet her, one of the things I love about her Aperture book is that it's like a roadmap into that mindset. And you begin to understand that her concerns with the history of photography and with the way images circulate and create desire and what the symbolic value of certain kinds of images through history, it's like, you actually, if Aperture's doing its job well, it's about taking somebody who understands and likes something and maybe pushes them towards something that they haven't considered, but but that I, but also might be equally of interest. Mm-hmm. And uh, you want to, you know, again, it's a small organization. You can't do everything all at once, but 
if you're intentional about that, you're pushing in the right ways that help people build new roadmaps through the medium. Making maybe. sure that you, if you're trying to lead, you're not too far ahead of the people you're leading. Well, yeah, you're you're I mean, either you using language together, or yeah, right? you're you either right. You're either together. using language and ideas that are intelligible <laughs> to to an interested audience, or you're not. And actually, I I it's one of the things you know. No one can read John Tchaikovsky's writing carefully without appreciating how. It provides an inroads into some of the most profound thinking about the medium mm -hmm. through the most straightforward language. And because Aperture is actually equally committed to words and pictures, and you know, I think it also can can bring people along like that. In other words, if you're looking at a photograph that feels really challenging or unfamiliar, then here are some words that might help you make sense of that. Mm -hmm. And you know, similarly, if you're looking at a photograph that feels somehow predictable or overly familiar, what kind of words can complicate that impression? Mm -hmm. And I think Aperture does that. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, to me, there's just endless possibilities. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, and, and, and my guess is that you just don't probably have the answer to this yet, or, uh, but, <laughs> oh. but I'm going to ask anyway as sort of a wrap-up question. I mean, do you have anything in your head right now that you know you're going to do differently than your predecessors? Well, I mean... Which doesn't I mentioned, mean, uh, you know, right, I mentioned yeah. a, right. I mentioned a little bit about the magazine, how I'd like a little more in the front and the back yep. that I feel that whether or not you're interested in it, I don't want to, I think the themes are great. I don't want to deviate from that at all. You know, they're so gorgeous and collectible and, you know, inspiring. So, but I do think a little more, you know, Michael and Brendan and Nicole and I have talked about things like that. But I would say overall, what I'm trying to do at Aperture, and I think this is why they hired me, is they know I'm not a publisher, <laughs> meaning it's no secret right. I've been a curator. And so I think the reason that I'm here is to try not, I don't think I could necessarily improve on the extraordinary publishing program that Chris Boot and these editors have developed. Like, I would be foolish to think that. So what can I take from my experience as a curator about a vision for the medium, mm -hmm. about um, an ambition for how to operate as a nonprofit, and to align that, you know, with the, across the organization, and again, it's just it's just trying to say, like, I know they hired me for something. And since I know they didn't hire me as a publisher, what else am I bringing to this that I could possibly add? Is there room and for more collaboration, do you think, with other organizations? I, I mean, you, I sure your network must so. be amazing. <laughs> um, I sure, well, yes, I hope so. Um, you know, I have a lot of good friends right. in the field, curators and artists, 
And a lot of my conversations over the last couple of months, like when I was even still at MoMA, they would write, congratulations, and I would write back. I'd say, what can Aperture do for you? Like, right. what's, mm -hmm. what's missing? And, you know, you can't say yes to everything. I did a program when I was at MoMA called the Center for Curatorial Leadership, and it actually did give me a my few marketable skills are thanks to that program. So I know through that, you know, everything you say yes to means you're saying no to something else. Mm -hmm. And I'm very conscious of that. And yet, while wanting to be totally intentional about anything new that we bring on, I think there's, you know, room for, I, I have an understanding of how museums work. Mm -hmm. I know how much my curatorial colleagues sometimes struggle to get a book published. I know sometimes how artists struggle to get a book published. And it's like, how can I, how can Aperture, not I, how can we serve that need better? And and I, <laughs> give me a couple months, we'll see how it goes. Or give me a couple of years, probably more likely. But um, but uh, but I'm excited to try. And I will say being able to try with a team like the one that's here. It's like, yeah, amazing group. I, I may fail, but you, no. you know who to blame. You're not going to fail. <laughs> I don't think. I mean, there's been also a lot of goodwill. And I, I think that, you know, you and I never even met. I know. And yet crazy. you wrote me a nice note when I, you know, and that fills me with optimism that um we're a good community good it is we are we are and and so here we go right on well i i mean i i i wish you all the best i just know it's i i really do feel that this is just going to be such an exciting tenure and um you know as part of the extended aperture family i know i'm so excited and and, you know, that sort of way it's coinciding with the world opening back up is, you know, an added bit of excitement. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Thank and your you. Generosity. I really appreciate it. You know, oh, my gosh. It was all mine. So thank you. And um, we'll, we'll be watching and rooting for you. And, uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Talk to you Thanks again so much. Soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by Jay Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.